Attracting enterprise clients uh, often requires an entirely different approach than for smaller clients. So uh, what does it take to lure the big fish? Today's guest is Alexander Barron, co-founder of Top Legal, a SaaS tool that helps with smart collaboration on contract frameworks and with negotiating agreements with clients. Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast, hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you, Victor. Thank you for having me. Totally. Um, how did you end up in, in SaaS? Always a great question. It's a, a rather long story. Uh, so ending up in SaaS was not originally my plan. I set out to work in, in banking for quite some time. Started off um, in the in the early 2000s in investment banking. That used to be a cool thing back then. Now it's not so cool anymore. Things have changed. And um, I started off as a banker in capital markets. And uh, with that, always comes a requirement to automate things. And that was my intro into um, getting into how software can help to automate things. And that um, carried me into, into my career where I thought, hmm, as a banker, you, you need to work with lots of contracts, need to work with lawyers. And uh, back then I thought this can go a lot faster than drafting a contract from scratch every time and pay lots of monies to lawyer, lawyers. And from that, I thought there must be some sort of software to automate the, the whole process um, without going from scratch every time. And at some point in my life, I thought I need to set up my own com company, run my own show and move outside the bank. So that was basically my, cool. my journey. How long was that ago? I think the first step I took uh, outside the banking world that I was in 2014, so quite some time ago, and then um, started off with a company that started matching lawyers um, with um, companies, and then from that we moved into, hey, when you match a lawyer with a with a company, why not go a step further and start producing the first contract draft? Because back then we had GDPR coming in. And from that, we already picked up automatically generating policies. And then we thought, hmm, if we can do this with um, privacy policies, you can do this with any contract. And we started off with a quite a slim software back then that um, was only able to generate a certain contract that we, so to say, pre-framed initially. But then we realized, well, we need to make this open and make this open to any contract. And then you don't want developers to work on the setup of a contract but companies need to come in and edit uh, edit the contracts themselves so without the help of a developer and that was um, the idea to set this up into a template editor and from that into contract automation and here we go top legal so that was quite some time ago very interesting are, are you technical yourself do you do you code yeah i started i started off and i, I still love to do it and i think um there's a certain point um every now and then i look back into the code now then the project has moved on to us to a certain level but um i started off coding at university level back also in banking where i thought well this company valuation can all be automated with a click of a button and that was my entry route into um developing work because i thought doing everything from scratch just takes a lot of time it's every every time it's the same work so why not automate it and with that, I thought, wow, this is amazing. You can do so many things. Um, object, Because back then I thought, well, developing is a, is a closed door. But once you really get your mind behind it, it opens up so many different opportunities. It's, it's really great. And once you understand one programming language, effectively, I mean, developers are saying, well, they're all different. But 
effectively object oriented programming language are quite similar in the way they're structured um they use different keywords they they have different functionalities yes and they some do things better than others but effectively yeah once you can speak one programming language you're able to master the others as well with a bit of practice after some time of course it's a, about the practice in the end right how, how how less or how much you need the documentation in the end day to day but um what do you do today? Do you still code or how, how big is the company right now? We are a team of about 20 people. It's um, kind of nice. growing a lot. So I don't know exactly. I think it's about 20, a bit more than, um, more than that. I get to code every now and then, but I just get to code and look at the code from now and then just to structure our roadmap, I think, and to see how much work is actually required. But at the moment, I'm currently in sales. I'm selling what we're developing at the end of the day. I'm doing marketing work, selling the company. I'm also a co-founder, but that doesn't really um, mean anything because what have you co-founded today? Nothing is really about selling the company, selling the products, marketing the products, marketing the idea, marketing the why, uh, what do we stand for? So that's what I'm doing currently. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you get into sales? Because that's another learned approach again, and and that's always very fascinating. Yeah, I think... um, that really, at some point uh, in the life of the company, you really need to get out and tell other people what you're doing and why you're doing it. If you're not doing that, you're being stranded with maybe a great product, maybe not so great product because you don't speak to clients. And it should effectively be the clients telling you what they require and what solution they need. And if you're not doing this, you're not selling anything. Waiting for the client to knock on your door because you built something is not going to happen. So at some point... My career in banking shaped that process where some someone with the ability to speak to other people and um, stand in front of seniors marketing the product um, was required. And at some point, that, that the logical decision that I need to move forward into that position. And I, I enjoy it very much. I, I assume that there's also a difference depending on what client you're, you're working with, right? Because one of the SaaS mantras maybe maybe you don't agree with it but is the self-service model right this is what SaaS supposedly is all about you literally just do a marketing funnel and some marketing materials and then people just randomly sign up to it and and, and start using it and you don't involve a sales person at all would you say that also smaller SaaS companies should invest in sales or is that more towards the bigger clients enterprise segment I would say definitely. I mean, at some point, some clients, you have a certain cost to acquire each client. And if if the set revenue per client is, is little, then personal selling is probably not the thing that you should be doing. But if the deal size is sufficiently large that with one client, you can subsidize the salary of a salesperson already, you should definitely do, the, uh, do this to build up a sales. Having said that, at the beginning, it's absolutely vital to go out and speak to people why because you need to understand what's happening at the clients and what processes are they running is actually my software fitting with that processes are we doing something right are we doing something wrong what problem are we actually solving understanding the problem and does the software fit with the problem um, if you're selling software that is Um, so it's absolutely required at the very beginning founder says it's absolutely essential that's the best investment you can have initially. Get out there, talk to people, um, get the feedback, collect the feedback, make the software better. Whether you then continue with a sales force really depends on the ticket size of your of your software. If you're able to sell your software for a 
couple of thousand euros per piece a year, then well, you should definitely invest into um, a Salesforce if it's 10, 20 in the hundreds, maybe not so not so much, but uh, it really depends on the product and the, um, and the revenue model that you're um, following. So a couple thousand euros, dollars uh, per year for an account is something that, that starts making sense to actually invest in in hiring a salesperson. That's interesting. That's great. And starting from what size does a client generally require a different approach also from their own expectations or how they buy, how they work? It depends on the company, but usually when, when the company gets in the, into the hundreds of employees, it usually requires, and if you're selling a product that's a firm, no, that garners a, a sufficiently um, large ticket, you need to have um, some boxes cleared. And getting these boxes cleared requires to speak to different um, set of people in the organization. You need to speak um, to someone with a budget to clear that um that tick the box that you require to get into the um, um, into the organization. You need to speak to IT, to security, so at various um, points in the organization to get um, in 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 there. If it's if it's smaller companies, decisions are usually taken by a single person, by two people. There's not a lot of um, not so much selling required. The larger the organization is, um, the more people you need to massage on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> so who's who's usually in, in involved? You said IT, obviously, to integrate security, obviously the decision maker of the department you want to sell to, whatever that might be for your SaaS, maybe some sort of champion that, that initially brought this up. Anybody else? Absolutely. So um, what you said, I think uh, initially um, the champion. The champion is also the person who tells you exactly who you, who you need to convince. That's um, uh, that's in some some one of the most important job of a salesperson really to find out uh, find out who takes the decision. Who do we need to convince? What is the next step? So there's not a set number of um, person that you need to convince, but it's really asking a champion or the person you're selling to who else do we need to convince and who is the budget holder, who is the economic buyer. And that's something you need to figure out um, in sales. Effectively is initially asking a lots of questions and in, in good um, sales talks, ideally you wouldn't talk more than your client. There are tools out there that help you measure exactly that, how much your share of um, the conversation you taking up and how much is taken up by the client speaking to you because you, you asked very intelligent questions. So ideally the client talks a lot more and you just nudge that person in giving you the right information. Interesting. And so when we're going through a champion, when we're speaking about a champion, that usually means we're kind of moving upstream. Like we, we convince someone probably who's going to use the tool, who will benefit from it, and we want them to believe this is a great product and help them convince or convince with on ourselves, but with their help, someone in a higher hierarchy that that this is something that should be bought for the company. Is that the best way? Or does it happen that you sell directly to the C-level executives like you would in a startup, maybe, as a client? So yeah, I mean, um, again, this is about asking the champion what the process usually entails and who the decision maker is. Um, but ideally, if you want to have the champion to do the set internal selling for you, you need to smart that person up, provide all the information that you figured out that person requires as part of the sales process. 
And ideally, if you um, find out that your product, I mean, this is also part of the sales process, understanding what the problem is and understanding whether your product fits the current problem. So you ask that your champion, you find out mm, there's currently apparently a need for that um, for that solution that you, pr uh, that, that you are providing. And then you're moving ahead from that into a situation where you present to other stakeholders in the organization who, is, who are going to use your software in a pursuit of healing that particular problem. And you need to have them on board. So it, eventually it happens. You speak to one person. This is your champion. The person takes another person on board and says, hmm, look at this. Um, this seems to be a good solution for our problem. Then other people think, uh, um, come into the meeting think, ah, yeah. I also need to be part of this. Um, and people realize, hmm, maybe this is also something for HR. And more and more people join into the whole conversation. And you also need to take them on board and consider their needs, either separately, if possible, or in that in that joint meeting. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I meant to ask if, if because obviously it's, it's great to have a champion, right? So this is the what I should try to find out first, right? Who could be a good champion for me if I don't know anybody in a certain company? And I don't first reach out to the higher level. I do try to find a champion within. Is that correct? It works both ways. So you could um, ideally, um, if you have a warm recommendation or you find some receptive C-level officer that is interested in your organization, you have a curiosity gap and that person wants to look at your product or your service um, and feels there is a, there's, a, there's a need for that um, service. So that's, that's one way of convincing th those people and they would work as a quasi-champion, but at some point they would hand you down um, some sort of, sort of project manager um, that looks after the problem. But coming with the recommendation of a C-level officer helps tremendously. Again, you need to then build up another champion, understand the problem, really, where do they stand, what is the project, uh, what is, who is on the project team, where do they currently stand, what's the next step. Still need to do a, a, a lot of work, but it helps come, coming being handed down from a from a C level officer um, that opens a lot of doors because if you start lower down in the organization you need to do a bit more work ask around understand what the problem is maybe you know not hitting the right people if you if you're talking about organizations of 10 20,000 people uh, large maybe you're talking to the right, wrong person maybe you're talking to the right person you need to understand where the organization has the problem it takes you a couple of calls to get to the, to the right person if you start from the top it's a bit easier because you're being handed directly to the project team who is looking after that particular problem so um doors are tend to be a bit wider open than when you come from the bottom when you come from the bottom gather information, speak to many people, understand what the problem is, speak to the users or potential users of your software, try to understand what their problem is because you can use that information when you speak to the decision maker. Hey, I spoke to A, B, and C and I understand the problem in their current um, daily business or daily, daily routine is. And then the, you can demonstrate that you have really put some, uh, some thought and some effort into it and you understand the problem. So Either way, works works well. The, um, going from from the bottom up requires a bit more work, um, but it's not wasted because that information you require um, anyway, and that information that you take from those people working with your software can then be used to again improve your software and improve your service. So either way is is, is good. Nice. And when I now think of a small self-service SaaS where someone just puts in their email credit card checks the box with the uh terms of service doesn't read 
signs up, done, right? This is, and that's literally it. What additional services would a large client usually expect from a software company apart from just the software itself? So yeah, that's what usually one of the questions that you need to clear with them with them initially. So asking what sort of services do you require from us from experience? Um, eventually get handed down um, if you pass all these uh, questions. Um, and if you answer all these questions and people say, yeah, we want to work with you, you usually have to go through a clearance with legal, with IT, and everyone who is, um, who is using that service. And uh, with that, you're being asked about um, service level. What sort of service do you um, provide? Do you have a help desk? Do you have uh, a documentation? And also, most importantly, do you have integration into other systems? That's also one of the more important questions. If you put one um, piece of software into a large organization, it's not a greenfield investment that they're doing. It's a brownfield. There are many other software applications in place already and with those you need to communicate and that's also part of the sales process that you need to figure out what processes are in place how are they currently being used what information is being passed between those services are they communicating already or is it a manual process in many in many cases it's actually a manual process and then it's really about to understand how much work is required there. Could my software maybe help to alleviate that work? So that would be another selling point that you can bring into the next meeting. Say, yeah, I understand you have a problem here because you're entering data manually from one system to another and maybe the same information twice. So you have a duplication of data, lots of work required here. So yeah, business integrations, integration in the other system, your data pipeline is is totally required aside from having a help desk, having a service desk that helps um, um, those people working with the application is totally essential. So yeah, integrations, especially probably also some trading or something like that. Do you do that often? Trading? I, tra I training, training. Training, yeah, yeah. Onboarding, definitely, yeah. You need to have some customer success in place. When when the client starts rolling out, initially you can have a few people working with that, so you need to onboard those people, give them a sort of training if it's not really intuitive, and, and show them how your software is, is different to what they're doing initially. For example, instead of entering data here and there, you just need to click the button there and you, you onboard those people and show them how they can improve the, um, the process. So yeah, training is, uh, is also important. And does it happen is, with you guys, for example, does it happen a lot that a large client requests a custom feature? How do you deal with that? That happens every now and then. So custom features happen and um, they happen all the time. And it's also a good thing and we need to understand why is this happening. Maybe um, the problem is, is slightly different, or maybe you haven't tackled the problem uh, with your current software um, fully. So that would be a, a product impro uh, improvement. So you need to understand how big is the problem, what's the nature of the problem, is it is it a problem that other clients have as well? And then you need to decide whether you're going to develop it or turn the client away and said at the, at the moment we can't do this um, for whatever reason so in this in this um, scenario it's very important to keep well documented well structured uh, product roadmap and only develop those features that are absolutely necessary and are to the benefit of other clients as well or fit into your product vision and you can um, entice other prospects with that product extension with that feature so i wouldn't say yes to everything that comes back from the client i would then go 
what are you trying to achieve with that feature? Because usually people tell you something, but you need to dig deeper. Uh, deeper. What is the underlying problem? What are you trying to solve with that feature? And and mostly a workaround or some feature that is already in your software can help. Maybe they haven't discovered it yet, but also maybe it's something that uh, it is really a problem that everyone has and you haven't fully um, um, discovered it yet. And this particular person has, has stepped forward and voiced that concern and brought this forward to you. So um, that's usually also greatly appreciated when people come back with feedback. And so I see some SaaS companies are open to doing completely custom feature sets that nobody else would be interested in using. And they're just normally charging the client like a software development company would. Is is that something you consider? or Because it sounds like you wouldn't do that mostly not um we we have a product vision we we have a product roadmap if it fits our product roadmap and if, if it's on there we would develop it but we we're not a, a software developer that's something if they require some custom-made solution that maybe sits in between two services we would then go hey we need a specialized developer for this um and, and this is outside our scope this is a different software we can recommend la 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 and we need some help from an, from another party we would always could um, go and develop only those features that are to the benefit of our roadmap and the benefit to um, more than just one client. It's really a, a budget decision and that you have to consider when you take this decision, how much money are you gaining from this um, from this feature? How much money does it cost you? Because the client is not going to be happy if you develop one feature, particularly for, the, for, for, for that issue, but the rest of the... Um, application just gets bogged down because you um, put all your development resources into into the development of one feature so that's you need to balance that um, and making the client happy in the long run and provide value in the long run is the most important thing that you can do rather than just providing a single feature that might not really help the client in, in, in the long run so it's really um, a, a case that you need to consider every time that you're thinking about that step it makes a lot of sense because it, it, it is about opportunity cost, right? When you develop a SaaS, you, with every every feature you release, you want to maximize the value that you receive for it, right? Ideally, with a lot of payments from a lot of clients. And here, even if it gets paid by the client, you are slowing down on your on your actual roadmap that that is supposed to provide more value maybe i don't know in the beginning some people probably do that to gain a big client maybe that's worth it in in, in that case but i i do agree with you that that makes a lot of sense absolutely absolutely you wouldn't want to go down this road you get um, specialist people in initially yeah if you try to get some uh, some some bigger clients yeah consider it but also Put the put the product vision into perspective and don't go down a road where you actually don't want to be or regret being. And and then in, I've heard this from other founders um, where initially, I mean, it usually happens in the in in the um, first years of of the being of a startup that people start developing something for a particular client, but then. In the long run, they don't want to maintain this anymore. So they have they have custom instances only for that client, and then maintaining this and takes a lot of work. And only if there's good money and you need this money, you want to do this. Otherwise, I would recommend stick with uh, with the roadmap. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of the hoops you need to jump through again uh, when making a sale, and you mentioned that one of them is legal. Since you guys work in the legal field, I think this is, is a great question to ask. 
what complaints or legal teams, what do they usually look at? What, what contracting frameworks do I need to have ready? That's a very good question. I think is I think also from a sales perspective, this is this is totally important to come into a meeting with a client with a full set of contracts in place because you don't want to end up looking stupid in front of a client if someone asks you um, for a data processing agreement. If uh, that is if you're processing um, client data, and you then need to ask the client what a data processing agreement is. It's probably not the best thing to have, but it's for, for them, it's really a tick-the-box, uh, whether you, you're dealing with the data that you're processing in a diligent manner. You don't want to um, be wasteful with the resources or with the data or uh, negligence, etc. So that's something you definitely need to avoid um, when dealing with this larger client. It's a tick-the-box for them. You need to show them a proper DPA, a proper privacy policy, a proper contract in place. It also needs to be, uh, to look professional. Um, so if you show them a pamphlet uh, with a few bullet points on that, you're not going to make the win. You need to have a well-structured process with um, headers that is easy to read. And as I said, needs to look professional and you need to get this these boxes um, picked. So yeah, from, from this uh, set of contracts that you need, a, a proper contract, uh, a proper licensing contract if you're in the SaaS business, a DPA, if you're processing um, data with that, the technical organization managed needs to, uh, measures needs to be um, in place, a data privacy. And if you're not regulating all the terms and conditions in your in your license agreement, you need to have some sort of general T's and C's um, sitting somewhere that look professional, that cover all the points. Yeah, that I think that's the minimum requirements. And uh, a lot of people speak about service level agreements. So that's uh, usually the service level would then be defined in the master agreement or... Yeah, that's um, one way um, of doing that. You can either have this in the in the licensing agreement. Um, you can also take this out and um, ha- as a as a separate um, document. Um, it either or is fine. You just need to have it um, showing what sort of um, service level you provide to the client. That's what we talked earlier. When you go through the compliance process, when is it um, service desk available? How can you reach them? What sort of um, Incidents processes have you be uh, have you got in place? Uh, what's your backup procedure? All this there sort of things need to be need to be in place um, to convince them. Yeah. And does it help to have any certificates, like great looking badges? I'm not speaking about the trust pilot thing, but more about uh, some compliance certificates uh, on security and data protection. Is is that something that helps, or is it even necessary? to get like audited by firms or something like that. Yes and no. It, again, it really depends who you're selling to. Um, I would initially as a startup, I wouldn't say um, you need them outright. We had occasions where I've been asked for ESO certificates and this sort of things. Get this if you um, a fintech and if you're selling um, to banks um, and the sorts, you might not, uh, need it. But bear in mind um there's a cost coming there with that because the ESA certification process or whatever you require from BaFin or from the bank uh, requires you to invest time and money in the in the whole process. And uh, if the client is not explicitly uh, asking for it, I would I would not do it at the very early stage. We have clients that have been asked this process um, are asked to provide the certificates, but only uh, only at a later stage. So if you can postpone this. Get a deal signed. Put this as a requirement in 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 the deal. Put a deadline if the require a client requires it, and if you can't avoid it, and then deliver uh, deliver the certificate once you're um, certain enough 
that you have enough money to pay for this, that you have um, clients paying, if, and if, ideally this is what you have clients for, you have enough clients to pay for that um, certificate because these things cost 50, 100,000 euros and only um, for the consultant on this, not considering your internal cost that you bear, pay, taking people from the, from the daily routine into working on the certificates, writing down all these things. So if you're not required, don't do it. But that that's actually a smart thing to do. Like sign, put it as a contractual requirement, but yeah. don't do it right out. Uh, have a guarantee that the deal is signed, and then only fulfill it. Because again, this is just a check the box thing. So if it's there, it's there. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have any any other tricks up your sleeve how you can enable you know salespeople or or anybody else to short circuit that contracting stage and, and help with that? Yeah, I think uh, that the most important thing is that um, A, you understand what the need is, that you communicate with, I mean, this, the, the general sales process, ask a lot of questions, understand what the need is. And also when it comes to contracting, the contract needs to mirror those needs and uh, needs to be in a readable format. Don't make it too complex. Don't make it too burdensome for someone to read the, pro and the contract. Have a need structure. Don't wander off with the structure. Don't break the structure. Have need headers. Have a, a proper wording in in the header that really signifies what you're talking in, about in the clause underneath. And and guide the person reading your contract through the um, through the contract. Make it easy for them. Uh, don't write contracts that are written by lawyers for lawyers. Usually, you don't find any lawyers um, in the whole process. So don't use complex uh, complex language when you can avoid it and make it easy for the other person um, to read it. If if it's complex, it usually ends up with legal, and our clients have about um, two legals um, for every 500 employees, so they really bog down with all sorts of other work and really don't like uh, reading um, oncoming contracts and um, due to diligence on a on a minor, minor supply that really is not a big ticket for them. So make it easy um, for the for the person on the other side to read your contract, understand it, and make it totally transparent. Uh, transparent what what you what you're selling. Don't hide anything in the in, in a contract, and 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 be fair with it. Um, there's a thing called um, uh, fluency in in contract terms. The the, the easier it is uh, to read, um, and the easier the contract looks on the eyes, the easier it is for the other person to sign the whole thing. And also. Try to avoid going into negotiation. Negotiation, um, unless you have a million or two million per ticket, yeah, then you want you want to negotiate. But usually, negotiation holds the whole thing up. Um, so, try to observe how people react to the to the contract. And if you're getting the same comments over and over again, why not change your clause in a way that when you, when you're dealing with a certain counterparty, then you put the softer clause in and don't negotiate that because you get the same comments again and they adamant um, on changing that. So why not? Why waste time? Just make it easy for them. That makes a lot of sense. And, and so you're, you're saying you can actually, even with big clients, completely skip legal by making an easy to read contract? Maybe not, not, again, it depends on the organization, but legal is also busy. If it lands with legal, it's, it, it looks professional. Um, all the points are there. It's easy to read. It's easy on the eye. It's also easier for them to pass it through. If it's a contract where you have mistakes, typos, avoid typos at all costs. If it comes uh, with a weird structure, weird headers all over the place, you're breaking the, the structure, you go from subheaders into um, a different structure, then don't do it. Just 
keep one flow, make it look professional as any any other sales document. I, that's how how we basically see the whole process. Try to make the legal step part of your sales process. Why is that? Because the late the legal is the last or should be seen as the last step of the sales process. If you're neglecting that that paradigm, it means when you lose clients on this contract signing step or it takes longer than usual in this in this contractual um, process step you lose a lot of money and if the client then says no on that um, on that contract step because you're not ticking all the boxes your contract doesn't look professional you're wasting time negotiating then you lose a lot of money because getting the client through the uh, through the funnel to um, to the legal te- step takes a lot of time usually depending on your um, on the software that you're selling and you don't really, really don't want to lose any clients in this last step because there is many, many hours of your sales organization lost on um, moving that client through the funnel only to lose him um, or her on the contract step. So absolutely avoid it. Totally. And how, how, can, how can Top Legal help with that entire process? Well, I think the, the most important thing, uh, thing here is to see this this last step as part of the sales process and with that um, your your stance changes completely we make um, contracts emotional because the whole sales process is an emotional process you speak to humans you use lots of colors you have this marketing process it's colorful it's fast and then all of a sudden at the end of the day when you come to this contract process you end up with this dry black and white contract with no emotions sitting there on the desk um, with a big preamble um, that talks about you as an organization that no one is really interested because everyone is interested about reading about themselves. And I think this this is something we can make it a lot easier, putting more information about the product, about the organization, explain things, and Top Legal takes it exactly there. Taking the legal the legal step into the sales process, making contracts emotional, explaining closet, making it fast to explain, also making this negotiation process that usually takes hours and weeks very easy um, in one flow, and then getting the client to sign very quickly, uh, very quickly by embedding that um, electronic signature directly on the contract. So it's really one click done sign, and you're moving um, through the whole um, contract process in hours instead of weeks and months. That's the whole whole deal. So you have more time selling your product rather than negotiating and looking after your contract that is very helpful so uh, where where can people find out more about the product and about you i think the the first um first contact point is usually our uh, website um we have lots of information there we have our blog where we talk about all these uh, things how you can make contracts better easy on the eye how you can structure um, um contracts how if you don't well, don't want to work with a contract lifecycle management software, um, how you you can use maybe Excel to keep an eye on your contracts, keep an eye on your parameters, these sort of things. We have lots of information, valuable information there sitting to be read. Um, and yeah, book a demo with us and talk to us, uh, and we look how we can help you with your contracting process. Awesome! This was really really helpful. Thank you so much for for coming on the show. Thank you for all these interesting questions. Thank you very much. This show is brought to you by TrustShoring, your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, 
match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one -on -one guidance all the way, so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.